0: As we continue the chronological reading of the Gospels, today we'll be reading from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. be reading Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 40, Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 34, and Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 40. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. So here's where we are with regard to Jesus' ministry. He's ministering in and around Jerusalem. These events take place during the week preceding His crucifixion, and these passages continue with the session in which Jesus was teaching in the preceding section of Scripture in Matthew 21:33 through 46 Mark chapter 12, verses 1-12, and Luke chapter 20, verses 9-19. We find a parable being given by Jesus at the beginning of Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready, come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm and another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Well, this string of parables... This being the third in the series that began back in Matthew chapter twenty-one, verse twenty-three. This is as a result of Jesus being asked by the chief priests and elders, "By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority?" Now, the first two parables in reply were in Matthew chapter twenty-one, verses twenty-eight to thirty-two, and then in chapter twenty-one, verses thirty-three to forty-six. Those two parables are designed to point out that these so-called leaders would not be comprising the coming kingdom of God, that kingdom of God on earth, because of their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. This third parable makes the same point. The wedding setting here is the celebration, by the way, sometimes lasts as long as a week. It's a picture of the kingdom of God on earth that Jesus has been proclaiming in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah. It's obvious here that those who were initially invited to the wedding are analogous to these Jewish leaders. Just like the original guests declined to attend the wedding, these leaders who question Jesus' authority, they're declining to be a part of any kingdom in which Jesus is the head. Interestingly, this parable offers them a second chance to reconsider. They again decline. Not only so, but they treat the messengers with contempt. Yup. We're still drawing an analogy to these wicked Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. Who ends up coming to the wedding? Well, it's just the plain common folks who attend. Likewise, Jesus reaches beyond the Jewish leadership of his day and extends an invitation for the common people to receive the message of the kingdom of God on earth. You'll notice also that those who decline the invitation are destroyed in verse 7. This parable has a little twist one man manages to get into the wedding who doesn't belong there. At the end of the tribulation, the kingdom of God on earth will begin with only those who've come out of the tribulation with a believing relationship in Jesus Christ. No imposters will be allowed. The earth will begin the millennium, which is analogous here to the wedding feast, with only invited guests, those who trusted God by faith during the tribulation. Likewise, the party crasher, He's not permitted to participate because he was not an invited guest. Incidentally, here we see an oft-misused verse, verse 14. That verse says, For many are called, but few are chosen. As you can see, the actual context of this verse indicates that while many are invited to participate in the kingdom of God on earth, we know it now as the millennium, only those chosen to be there and only those who have complied with the Messiah's criteria only those will be permitted to be part of that kingdom the wedding supper scenario is used by jesus to describe the millennium in matthew chapter 25 verses 1 through 13 as well in that analogy we once again see those who do not belong there but in an expanded scenario the party crashers so to speak are then described in matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 46 but there we find out more about their identity they are gentiles who rejected the gospel message spread by the witnesses during the tribulation leading up to the millennium. Rather than being granted access to the millennium, being the wedding feast, they're banished when it is said in Matthew chapter 25 verse 41, "Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels." Then we see in verse 46 of chapter 25, "and these will go away into everlasting punishment." But the righteous into eternal life. If you'd like to know more about these verses and other verses regarding prophecy, then go to the topic section of BibleTrack.org on the main page and look at the Guide to Prophetic Scripture. In preparation for the next section of reading, you may want to consult the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, where I give a detailed description from Easton Bible Dictionary on the identity of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians, because we find them front and center in the next section of Scripture with regard to who's on that coin. We're reading Matthew chapter 22 verses 15 to 22, Mark chapter 12 verses 13 through 17, and Luke chapter 20 verses 20 through 26. First, Matthew 22:15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk, And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness, and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, "...whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled, and left him, and went their way." Now Mark's account is found in Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. "...then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words." When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, and care about no one, for you do not regard the purse of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay, or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius, that I might see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, over to Luke, his account in Luke chapter 20, beginning with verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words, in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly. And you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Well, the Pharisees call in some reinforcements here. They can't battle Jesus by themselves, so they ask for the Herodians to accompany them, who just happen to be their political adversaries. These pro-Roman Herodians take their shot at Jesus as well. There's nothing whatsoever sincere about those who come to Jesus on this occasion in the temple. These Herodians were like Sadducees, but with a compliant attitude toward the Roman domination of Israel. They have very little in common with the Pharisees except for extreme hypocrisy. Well, that being the case, what's the deal with the Pharisee-Herodian collusion we see in this passage against Jesus? Well, Luke is quite clear regarding their intentions on this occasion. When he says in Luke chapter 20, verse 20, "...so they watched him," and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Notice the phrase, who pretended to be righteous. Righteous? How deceptive can one be? It's very obvious that the Pharisees would make a deal with the devil himself if it would help them get rid of Jesus." Since the Herodians were very loyal to Rome, they're the perfect hitmen for this job. The job being to get Jesus to publicly renounce Roman rule. If Jesus were to renounce Rome, the Jewish leaders can have him arrested by the Romans on charges of treason. But if he doesn't renounce Roman rule, they speculate that the people will turn away from him as a Messiah. The Messiah, they conjecture, would surely express a disdain for Roman rule but Jesus outsmarts them with his answer. Well, of course he did. He had supernatural perceptive powers. As Jesus holds a Roman coin up, he says, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. The scripture tells us that they marveled at that answer, but of course they were disappointed that their ploy had failed. In our next section of scripture, it's time for the Sadducees to take a verbal swing at Jesus. We'll be reading Matthew chapter 22 verses 23 to 33, Mark chapter 12 verses 18 to 27, and Luke chapter 20 verses 27 to 40. First, Matthew 22:23. The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, "'Saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, "'his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. "'Now there were with us seven brothers. "'The first died after he had married and having no offspring, "'left his wife to his brother. "'Likewise the second also, and the third even to the seventh. "'Last of all, the woman died also. "'Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? "'For they all had her.' Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching." Now we go over to Mark's account of the same occasion, beginning with Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise, so the seventh had her, and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, "'Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God?' For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Now over to Luke's account in Luke chapter 20 beginning with verse 27. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, "'The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage.' nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that they dared not question him any more. Well, since the Pharisees and the Herodians had failed to indict Jesus in the preceding section of Scripture, here come the Sadducees to take their turn at attempting to humiliate Jesus before the people while He's teaching in the temple. Now, these Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, among other scriptural truths that they'd also rejected. It's interesting, though, that they controlled the priesthood. The high priest was always chosen from among the Sadducees during this period. I'm confident they use this hypothetical illustration of theirs quite often to show what they consider the fallacy of the resurrection doctrine. They based their illustration upon the provision for widows who had not yet born children, that provision is found in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 and 6. These marriages are referred to in Hebrew culture as leveret marriages. This woman, their hypothetical woman, she survives seven, I mean, count them, seven husbands. Although they claim in Matthew twenty-two twenty-five that the story is true, I'm just not buying the story. To me, the bigger question should have been, how bad can one woman's cooking be? I mean, to lose seven husbands. In my opinion, only the Son of God could hold a straight face while they go through this ridiculous scenario. Nonetheless, in their minds, Jesus must reject the doctrine of the resurrection, which will once and for all put him at odds with the Pharisees. Instead, Jesus tells all of them something that they didn't know about heaven. People don't marry there. It's easy to overlook, but notice in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 20, verse 39, it says, Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. These were the professional copyists and students of the law, and they were impressed. Jesus makes another point here, which strikes at the heart of the Sadducees' belief system when he quotes God speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Here's what he says. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Since the Sadducees only respected the law of Moses and rejected the resurrection, the I am the God, present tense, accentuated an inconsistency in their doctrine, their doctrine being of the fact that they didn't believe there was a resurrection. In other words, God tells Moses that he is, not was, but that he is the God of those who had already passed from mortal life to eternal life, specifically had been resurrected. So, Sadducees, what do you got to say about that? In the next section of Scripture, we switch back to the Pharisees. Be looking at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40, and Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. First, Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Mark dedicates more verbiage to this in Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Well, not wanting to be outdone in this duel with Jesus, the Pharisees appoint one of their own scribes and a lawyer, I might point out, to ask Jesus a question. Here's the question, which is the great commandment in the law? That seems like a pretty lame attempt to stump Jesus, don't you think? I mean, every observant Jew then and now. They quote several times a day, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Well, this passage is part of what's known by Jews as the Shema. If you want to know more about that, look at my notes on Deuteronomy chapter 6. So here's what Jesus says back in reply, taking it from Matthew's account. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Well, that's right. If you want to summarize the law of Moses, here it is boiled down to just two action items. The first being love for God and the second being love for one another. Mark chapter 12, verses 32 to 34, are interesting here. It appears that the scribe who asked the question is in fact impressed. And Jesus recognizes his softened attitude toward the kingdom message when he says to him in verse 34, You are not far from the kingdom of God. This concludes our podcast for today.